to see you. I had my eyes closed for the last time, so I really am seeing you now. So this morning we're going to look at the text that Hal just read, Genesis, super significant text, God's covenant. This is actually, in this, in this narrative of Abraham, one of the longest narratives in the entire ancient Near, in, in, in ancient Near Eastern literature, not only in the scriptures, but in, in ancient Near Eastern literature, of this man's life and of his faith journey with God, God called him out of, as Hal read toward the end, Ur of the Chaldees, or in key text for, um, to, to follow him and to trust him. And this is a key, key text for us, and it's used all throughout the New Testament by Paul in Romans 4 and Galatians 3 and elsewhere to talk about how God saves us. Abraham is the father of those who put their trust in the Lord, and we're going to see more of that today. Uh, but in this narrative where we've learned a little of Abraham, we're going to learn a lot more as we continue to march through. I believe we'll make it all the way through chapter 22. Um, this is actually, I learned this for the first time. Uh, in studying this, this is actually the first time that Abram, in all of his interactions with the Lord so far, it's the first time that Abram actually speaks to God. Every other time God has spoken to him, and he's just flat obeyed. Now, there are some times, even so far, where he has done some bonehead things, and he, he's a man of faith. That doesn't mean he's perfect, and if you trust in Jesus, you're going to continue to, as we read in our confession of sin from 1 John, and we're going we're gonna to continue to fall and sin and have foibles and stumble. And we've seen that from Abraham, and we will see it again. But this is actually the first time that he speaks back to God. So it's a really significant text for that reason. In the Hebrew Bible, the first time uh, a man in, like Abraham in a major narrative opens his mouth and speaks to the Lord, super significant. And then we have this amazing covenant ceremony with the cut animals and the fiery torch and all that. We're going to talk about that. Robert Alter, a great, he's a classicist, and he's a Hebrew translator and commentator. He, he translated and commented on the whole Hebrew Bible. He's the only person to have ever done that, a single author translation and comment, literary commentary. And he says this, until this point, all of Abram's responses to God have been silent obedience, as I just said. His first actual dialogue with God expresses doubt. That's really significant. This man of faith, that's something I kind of missed the first hundred times through this text. And then in getting to sit on it in preparation for this week, his first actual dialogue with God, he expresses doubt that God's promise can be realized, Alter says. This first speech to God reveals a hitherto unglimpsed human dimension of Abram. Now, if we look back just sort of over some of the things we've trotted through in the past few weeks, Abram has just re rescued Lot at great at great risk to himself. He was successful. He went to war against four Mesopotamian kings. It's he and his household. 318 trained men just raised up in his household alone. He's none the richer, though, and he's probably got some enemies now. Okay, he didn't accept any payment from any spoils from having captured, recaptured Lot, any spoils from Sodom. He's looking to God alone, but he still hasn't God's promised him all these things, but he's not any richer, and he actually has more enemies. So it makes sense that God would open up and say, Abram, don't fear. It's the first verse. I'm your shield. I'm your shield, and I'm your great reward, or your reward will be very great. It can be variously translated. Um, you know, perhaps that Abram had hoped that Lot, his nephew, would be his heir. But no, Abram has stuck himself in Sodom firmly. Then there's Eliezer, his household manager, 
and his Syrian household manager, and it was common in the ancient Near East if you didn't have a child to pass to pass your possessions on to someone that you trusted likely within your household. Um, he doesn't have any kids. That's the how the promise is going to continue through his progeny. He doesn't have any. So we see the narrative full of Abraham trying to help God, and God's like, just trust me. I don't need your help. Trust me. Um, but he has no kids. He owns no land. He's not getting any younger, right? He's probably in his firmly in his 80s, mid-80s, late-80s at this point. And Gordon Winham, a great Old Testament commentator, writes this. He says, God, therefore, addressed Abram's disappointment directly in verse 1. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your very great reward. Um, and, you know, what God doesn't do is say, Abram, I told you to trust me and stop complaining. He doesn't say that. He actually reaches out, just like Jesus reaches out to Thomas, who's doubting, and says, come. You want evidence? Touch. See for yourself. Here, not yet in the flesh, that same God actually encourages Abram to share with him his sense of disappointment and frustration. You know, maybe, and, and this is who God is. He, he, wants, he invites us as we trust him, but falteringly. He invites our frustrations and doubts. He knows them, and he wants us to share them with him. Maybe, maybe you're not where you thought you would be in life. Maybe it's your job. Um, maybe, it's, maybe it's your family. Maybe you, you don't have one but want one. Maybe you don't have a spouse but want one or have a spouse that isn't where, where you wish he or she would be. Maybe it's with, with your children. Maybe you're a kid and you've got your friendships aren't where they ought to want to be or your, your school or, or whatever it is. Um, maybe you feel God has made promises to you in Christ so you don't, you don't see a lot of evidence for them. Um, well, God is patient. He's patient with Abram, and he's encouraging to Abram. I do not fear. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. And he gives Abram some amazing, visible assurances we'll get, we'll get into. Um, and he gives Abram a strange but wonderful answer. So without telling you, that actually was the first point. Sorry. Um, if you're taking notes, you might want to go back up to the top and just say, I'm, ta- I'm calling that first point just the question, right? It's, it's a question that Abram has, and it's basically, how will I know? How will I know that you're going to do what you said you're going to do? And God gives Abram this strange but wonderful answer. Um, so after point one, the question, I want to move into point two, uh, the credit. God's patience and his strange answer. So in one sense, um, God's answer is plain. Um, he gives, God gives a promise to Abram. He's reiterating his promise, but what does he, he gives him a, he gives him an illustration to, to look up and see, to, to assure him, to give him an illustration of his promise, of how great his promise is going to be. What is that illustration? Yeah, he says, look up. In the, in the past, in chapter 13, I think it was, that Chase preached a few weeks ago, he says, look down and look at the dust. He says, the, the, your, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the dust. Now he says, look up. Look up at the stars. So he's kind of covered it all. And, and the stars there weren't like the stars in Houston, I can almost assure you. If they were, everyone would have been like, I'm gonna, so I'm going to have three kids? No, they were like the stars in the Rockies on a clear night, right? I mean, and even more so. No, no uh, light pollution, just, just a blanket of stars. And 
he says, look up at the stars, social your descendants be. Count them if you can, and of course you can't. Social your descendants be. And again, the descendants that God's talking about, not just ethnic Jews, but those who of the faith of Abraham will trust in the God of Abraham. You know? So as, as numerous as the stars. Um, and so, again, uh, God is an inc- he's encouraging Abraham. He's giving him these visible signs. Um, you look at verse 6. It's, it's pretty much the key verse in – it's one of the key verses in the Bible, and it's the key verse in this text. And then God goes on to sort of give evidence of how he's going to accomplish this. Um, but it's also this interesting, it's an interesting answer because God, Abraham's saying, how will I know? And he says, look up at the stars. He gives him an illustration. But then he goes to verse 6 and he says this, right? Look at it with me. He says, look at the stars, so shall your offspring be. Okay, that many. And Abraham, what? Without any evidence, physical evidence to look at, but rather the word of the Lord alone, verse 6 says what? He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So it's a bit of a strange answer because one of the things that is happening here is that God is saying, yes, look up at the stars. That's my answer. So shall your descendants be. But he's also saying the answer to your descendants, to all the families of the earth being blessed through you, is actually going to, it's going to occur through your faith, which I'm going to count to you as righteousness. And how that is accomplished is actually how the promise will be fulfilled of the children that number the dust, that outnumber the dust and the stars in the sky. And so I want to talk about that. Um, Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him or credited it to him as righteousness, right? Um, What the Lord has always demanded from each and every person and what he made us for is righteousness or rightness, a right relationship with him. But sin severs that, sin interrupts that, and we all don't just sin, we're born into sin because of our, the sin of our parents, Adam and Eve. We're born, we're born into that broken and severed relationship. Um, and so we do things and say things all the time and then left things undone that we ought to do that, that sever our relationship with God like, like, a, like a tree branch severed from, from the trunk. So the Lord has always demanded righteousness. With Abram, it's no different. Um, his problem is ours today. Um, Abraham didn't have that righteousness, right? Again, I, I mentioned it a couple uh, sec- minutes ago, but chapter 12, he basically endangers the entire promise of God by allowing his wife to be known as his sister, and Pharaoh takes her to be his own wife, and that endangers the entire promise. And Abraham, through cowardice, allows that to happen, but God intervenes. God intervenes. Um, and then next week, we'll be in chapter 16, and Abram again slips up and sins and listens to his wife who says, like, this is never going to happen. Why don't you just take my maidservant Hagar that we had, our, our, our servant that we have from Egypt, and you can accomplish God's promise through her. So they have a kid together, Ishmael. And that doesn't work out well. It, it leads to the creation of a race that is still at war, even this very day, with Israel. Right? But God works good through it. He works good through it. Um, so Abram does that, and that's coming next week. So stay tuned. little preview. Um, and then in chapter 20, he basically does the same thing again that he did in Egypt with the Philistines and Abimelech. And he s- 
says that, hey, my wife, my sister, try to, try to save his own skin. Same thing happened. Um, so Abraham didn't have perfect righteousness, and neither do we. But Abraham believed God and was credited with a righteousness not his own. Um, you, can, you can literally read that verse like this. It, it can read this way. And he credited it or counted it. God counted it to him, Abram, that righteousness, as if it were his righteousness. But it wasn't. Um, it was that of another counted to Abram as if it were his own through the open hand of faith. Um, it was an outside righteousness, outside of Abram received by Abram, credited into his account. It's an, it's an accounting term. It was reckoned to him or credited to him or counted to him as if it were his, even though it was not his. And we actually talked about this a little bit today in the, in the kids' lesson this morning at 9. Um, now, theologians refer to this outside righteousness, I think we've talked about this before, as an alien righteousness. Now, when you hear alien, what do you think of? Yeah, Martians, uh, flying saucers. That's not what it means here. It doesn't mean a flying saucer or a Martian righteousness that wouldn't help us, wouldn't help Abram. It means an outside, it means an outside righteousness, not from what we've done, but what from, from what another has done, from another's record. And that is the very, the very record of God. God's own righteousness is counted by God into Abram's account as he believes in God's word and God's promise. And that's why Abram is called the father of faith, because he's the father of of all those who also trust in the promise of God, just as Abram did. And God credits the righteousness of another to us. He pushes it into our account. Like pushing money that's not yours into your account and counting that as yours. Okay? It's a perfect righteousness. It covers our sins and our foibles. Um, and like I said, this is the strange and wonderful part. The righteousness credited to Abram by faith is actually connected to his descendants as numerous as the stars. It's integral to the answer that God gives. How? Um, let me read just to underscore Gordon Wenham again. He says this, righteousness is the state of acceptance by God, which comes from perfect obedience to the law. Now, as I've already said, just briefly, Abram's imperfections are made plain in this narrative, nobody, least of all the author of Genesis, is touting Abram as having a, a righteousness which is his own. He doesn't. But he trusts in one who is righteous and who counts trust in him as, as if it were Abram's righteousness. And it's the very righteousness of God. A perfect righteousness is thus conferred on Abram from the outside. It's credited to him from someone else's account. Whose? God's. And the question is, the controlling question is how, right? Um, how is this going to happen? Abram says, he says, how am I to know that I will possess uh, this land that you're going to give me? How, will I, how am I to know that I will possess these promises, all these descendants, all this land that you're going to give us, this people, this place, how am I to know? And God's, what's God's answer? What's God's answer? That's in verse 8. How does God answer? Yeah, and it's, and it's a word that somebody earlier said, I think, heifer. Yeah, what, is, what is that, right? Yeah, it's a heifer, right? In other words, Abram says, God, how am I to know? I don't have any evidence in front of me. 
And again, God's not putting a hand in his face. He's encouraging him. He's meeting him in his frustrations, in his doubts, this man of faith. And he's doing the same with you and with me. He does that. He meets us where we are. He cares and he hears and he listens. And his response is a bit strange at first. It's, hey, bring me a cow. Bring me a ram. Bring me some birds and cut them and lay them them out side by side. So God's answer as to how can you know that I I am to be relied upon even in the face of nothing that you see giving you any assurance that this promise is going to be kept. He goes, I'm going to give you something that's more rock solid than anything your eyes can see. Bring me a heifer. And what Abram proceeds to do, and this is, so we've talked about the question Abram has. We've talked about the credit that's conferred on Abram that's God's own righteousness received by faith. It's not Abram's. And it's counted to him or credited to him as his own. But now I want to move to the point three, the covenant. All right, the covenant. And Abram says, how can I know? And God says, bring me a heifer. How can, how can you know that I'm going to keep my word to you? I'm going to cut a covenant with you, Abram. And, and in the Hebrew, the phrase is indeed cut a covenant. We say make a covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham. What he's about to do with these animals is an ancient Near Eastern. It was actually a normal, even outside of the Bible, covenant ceremony that was done between a greater and a lesser, between a lord and his vassals or servants or slaves. And, and so what God says is, I'm going to give you an answer. I'm going to cut covenant with you. And you can see why it's called cut covenant, because literally you, you're cutting animals open. You're killing them, and it's a bloody affair. And you're laying them out side by side. And the birds are small enough that they're actually not laid out. They're just put there, and they're, they're killed and put there. And then the larger animals, uh, the cow and the sheep, are laid out in halves. And what would happen is, I think there's the covenant parties as they cut this covenant. You ever seen, you know, like Blood Brothers? I think there's even a movie. Or maybe that's called, maybe it's called Step Brothers. Anyway, <laughs> but I'm thinking of the one with Will Ferrell. Haven't seen it. Um, Blood Brothers, right? Or it's, it's like this serious ceremony where you, you cut your hand together and you shake and you say, we're, I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna shake on this and we're going to keep this covenant. This is, that's like a, a pansy version of what's going on here. And this was a common ancient Near Eastern covenant. And um, and so what Abram did is he laid out the pieces of these killed animals. And then the two parties in the ancient, ancient Near East, they would pass through these animals. Again, often a, a lord and his servants. And they would enter into, enter into the strongest of binding agreements. And what they would say quite simply is, okay, uh, if I break this covenant that we're making, you can do to me what we've done to these animals. My life is forfeit. It was the strongest of covenants. It wasn't just something that you could pay some money like a contract and get out of. Getting out of it was, breaking it was, it cost you your life. But the amazing thing is that it's, it's, when it's done with a greater and a lesser, as certainly is the case with God and Abram here, almighty God, who's greater than God? No one. We don't see... First of all, a lot of times the sovereign would make the lesser walk through the pieces. Sometimes they would both walk through the pieces, like a figure eight through these pieces and say, again, if I break this, you can do this to me, what we've done to the animals. But the amazing thing is that what happens to Abram? 
He's on the sidelines. As the sun goes down, a deep sleep and terror fall upon him, and he's completely not part of the covenant ceremony. He just sees, as the sun is going down, this burning, this smoking pot and a burning torch. God alone is the one who passes in this theophany, in this revelation of God through fire. He's the one who alone passes to the people, who puts Abram to the side. Not, not only is, is, it would be amazing if the greater God is entering into the ceremony and walking the pieces with Abram. That's not even what happens. He comes in, the greater comes in and takes the covenant. He takes the consequence of the covenant upon himself, and Abram is just on the sidelines, right? And he takes both parts, and I think that's something of what we see. Why are there two? Why is, why is there a smoking pot and a burning torch? God is taking both sides of the covenant ceremony and saying, I will keep this, and if I don't, you can do this to me. You can cut me, cut me in the middle. But also, I'm going to take responsibility for the other party, Abram, for your side too, and for all of your descendants who trust me by faith. And if you or your descendants don't keep the covenant and break it, I also will take responsibility for your side for breaking the covenant. I'm going to take responsibility for both sides. That's what the smoking pot and the burning torch passing through while Abram is just sitting over there with fear and sleep upon him on the sidelines. It's what theologians refer to as a unilateral covenant, one-sided. God takes both sides, not bilateral, it's not two-sided, it's normally two-sided. In this case, God takes it both sides, both parties upon himself. If I break it, you can cut me in half. If you break it, you can cut me in half. God himself does this. And this is his answer to Abraham. Abraham, or Abram, I might call him Abraham. His name becomes Abraham. Abram, how can you know, despite having no visible assurances, you have no land, you're none the richer, you have more enemies now, you don't have a kid, and you're in your 80s, if not early 90s. How can you know? And God's answer, his strange but wonderful answer is, here's how you can know. Bring me a heifer. I am going to keep this covenant. Even if, if I break it, you can do this to me, but also if you or your descendants break it. I am going to keep this covenant at infinite cost to myself, at infinite harm to myself. Um, most scholars point out that this smoking fire pot, there's so much here that like I did away with most of my notes. There's just too much. Most scholars point out that this smoking fire pot and burning torch, it likely points to, especially with what comes right after this, where God says, if you notice, he passes through the pieces God does, and it's theophany, this revelation of God through fire. And he speaks to Abraham. And what does he speak to Abraham? He says a few things, but one of them is that, hey, Abraham, it's going to be no accident that you'll, you will have descendants, but where are they going to be for the next 400 years? They're going to be in Egypt. Not an accident. They're going to be they're going to become slaves in Egypt. Not an accident. I'm going to bring you out with a mighty hand until the time is perfect and ripe. It's going to seem to all your descendants like I've forgotten them. It's going to seem like the slavery, like all the hardship and pain in your life is for naught. And God is saying it's all perfectly timed so that I can bring you out with a mighty hand. And I can walk you through the Red Sea as on dry land. And I can devastate your enemies 
and I can be with you in the howling waste in the desert for 40 years. And most, most um, scholars say this, pill, uh, this smoking fire pot and burning torch, especially with that bit afterwards where he says to Abram these words, for 400 years your, your people are going to be slaves in Egypt, but I'm going to bring them out with a mighty hand. If none of it's by accident, I'm going to be with you. I will be with you in the pillar of cloud by day and by a pillar of fire by night. This is a pointer to that. I am the God who is with you. I am the God who is covenanting to you myself. I will never leave you or forsake you. This is the God of Abram. This is the God of Egypt, 400, uh, uh, who takes them out of Egypt 400 years later. This is the God who touches the hot coals to the prophet Isaiah's lips seven centuries before God takes on flesh. And then in the fullness of time, 2,000 years ago, God actually comes to be with us. 1,800 years after he makes his promise, he comes, he's born of a virgin, and he comes to live among us as a man, Jesus of Nazareth. And there's this scene in right before the cross. It's on the evening before his cross in a garden called Gethsemane, which you can go to today, which we've been to. And in that garden, Jesus is counting the cost of actually being cut as it were, from top to toe, being, being pinned to a tree to become a curse, to become, to bear the curse of a covenant breaker. Even though he's kept the covenant, we haven't kept our end of it. We've egregiously broken it. And Jesus is going just true to his word as he gave to Abraham. He's going to actually take, take on the penalty of, of, of us, covenant breakers. And he, on that tree, will become a curse for us. And he on that tree will be pierced for us like an insect, pinned to an insect spear, shamed, bearing our sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Having the white hot wrath of God Almighty for all the sin and evil of every person who looks to him, who looks to Jesus, poured out into, like, like molten metal into his very soul. Hell will he taste. Hell will he taste for us. He's, he gets a taste of that in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before the cross. And he cries out to his father. And, he, and he's with his crack team, his three, closest, his three closest disciples. And he's like, please stay awake and pray with me. I'm sweating. He's over 100 yards away pleading with his father. Father, if there's another way, if there's another way, I don't want to become sin. I don't want to have your wrath poured out on me. We've never been apart. I, I don't want to be abandoned by you. If there's another way for, any, for them to be saved, please, that way, but, but not my will, but yours be done. He submits himself to the Father. And the Father, of course, in his silence is saying, what? What is that? And so Jesus loved you and me enough to go all the way to become that curse. But in that garden, what happens to his crack team? What happens to the Abrahams? What happens to the three? They don't help him at all. They are a deep sleep and fear fall upon them just like on Abram and they have zero percent to do with keeping the covenant Jesus does it all Jesus is the answer the one to whom Abram looked John 8 56 and 58 Abraham saw my day and rejoiced Jesus is the one he is the one who will be cut open for us whose life and his righteousness will count for us as we receive him by faith, whose death and covenant curse will count for us as we look to him hanging on that cross by faith. He is the one that is the assurance to Abraham 
of God saying, I will keep my word. I know you don't have any kids. I know you're none the richer. I know you actually have more enemies because of me right now. I know I've taken you from your home. I know you're in a tent. But I am telling you with the strongest word I have, whose name is Jesus Christ, who will be torn limb from limb in 1,800 years for you. God is saying, I myself, I myself am going to come and do this. And that is how you will know. Despite, and friends, I want you to take this to wherever you are. Despite everything you see or don't see in your life, despite your pain, despite how things have or haven't worked out, Jesus Christ is the reason, the sufficient reason that we can trust that God loves us, has taken care of our sin of death and hell, and is taking us somewhere good. He will make of us a great people. He will finish what he started. He will take away sin and the curse as far as the curse is found. He will be with us. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He will reign as the God-man with his people in a new creation. He will make all things new, and he will do away with everything sad. In the words of J.R. Tolkien, he will make everything sad come untrue. Despite, if you're in Christ, that is for you. It will happen because, because of Jesus Christ. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of what you see or don't see, he will do it. He will do it. The Lord causing, let me just say a few more things here and then close. The Lord um, caused a deep sleep to fall on Abram, as we've said. This is the same word used and used for the first time. First times in the Hebrew Bible are always important. It's it's used for the first time when he caused a deep sleep to fall on Abram. In Genesis 2, verse 21, when God causes, causes a deep sleep to fall on whom? Adam. When he does surgery, he pulls a rib. First surgery in the Bible, doctors. You probably know this. He pulls a rib. He puts Adam in a deep sleep, and he pulls a rib out, and he makes Eve. He makes us dudes from the dirt. He makes Eve from something finer. That's why women be finer, right? I'm just saying it's true. Um, so he pulls a rib. He makes Eve from the rib, and he brings her to Adam in this beautiful covenant ceremony. It's a picture of our relationship with God. Um, but Adam had as much to do in that deep sleep with making Eve zero, as Abram has to do with keeping this promise, right, with being righteous before God. He simply receives, he believes and receives with the open hand of faith all that God is offering, ultimately in Christ Jesus. Um, of, of verse 18, verse 18 here, let me just read it. Genesis 15, 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cabanites, and on he goes. Of this verse, verse 18, Robert Alter, that same guy I mentioned earlier, the Hebrew scholar, he, he says this, he says, Moshe Weinfeld, shrewdly, a Jewish commentator, shrewdly observes that for the first time, the divine promise is stated. Now, he's given this promise to Abram a number of times in the chapters and decades previous, right? This is the first time that a divine promise is stated with a perfective, not an imperfective verb. And all God's people said, wow. Yeah, okay. I'm bringing grammar into the, uh, we were talking grammar at the doorway earlier, and we're talking grammar again. It's stated, this is the first time that God's promise is stated with a perfective. What does that mean? Okay, John's learning, starting to learn Greek and Hebrew where he is now, so maybe he knows and he studied, and Andrew studied it some. 
What that means is that an imperfective in Hebrew means it's, it's unfinished. The action is unfinished. What perfective means is the action is done. It's complete. So what is this saying here? It's saying that after performing both sides of the covenant ceremony, Abram sits out in a deep sleep, and God says to Abram, I have given your seed this land. And Abram's like, what seed? And what land? And God says, it's as good as done because of the covenant ceremony that I have just performed both sides of. It's as good as done. What did Jesus say on the cross? One of his last words on the cross, three words. It is finished. It is done. It is, the word means complete. There is no more that you can do to, to, be, to, to, be, to stand before God rightly, fully accepted as his son or daughter, dearly loved. Simply receive it, okay? And all that follows unto the new creation. It's a life of faith in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Um, it's ironclad. It's as good as done. It will happen. Take it to the bank. Robert also says this, and then I'll close. He says, this small grammatical maneuver catches up a large narrative pattern. Remember, we're in this large Abraham narrative that takes us to Christ. It catches up this large pattern in the Abraham stories. The promise becomes more, get this, get this, get this. Stay with me. I know we're, we're almost done. The promise becomes more and more definite. It's the first time he uses a verb to, in, a promise to, in his promise to Abraham where it's, it's a completed, it's done, it's finished. It becomes more and more definite, the promise does, as it seems progressively less and less likely to happen. Do you see? Don't be dismayed by your current circumstances. Come to Jesus. Trust in him. God's word to you is yes and amen. It is finished, and he will certainly speak, and he is working it out in you, broken, sinful, as you and I are. He loves you. As Martin Luther says, let me just appropriately close with the words of Luther. This won't be the last time. Not the first one, will be the last. Simul justus, closes from Latin, right? Simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously just, righteous, justified before God, fully, fully at peccator, and a sinner. We stand continuing to sin, though no longer identified by it, but fully righteous and just before God, we who trust in Christ. And that offer is for everyone. And thanks to Abram, the father of faith, for, uh, for, showing, us, for showing us how, and thanks to God for showing us through him. Um, we have a God, the only God, who's not only sympathetic to us in our questions and pain, but he enters it. Let me just read Edward Shalito, um, Jesus of the Scars. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for... Thank you for your word to us, which is Jesus. Same word you gave to Abram. We bless you. Help us to run to you every day. Help us to trust spirit. Help us to walk streets, which are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Grow us up in the most holy faith. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to walk together and to proclaim this amazingly liberating news. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Guys, we're going to continue to worship. I remember this week, remember how last week I went straight to communion, but we're for a while.